0: This war is full of incredible stories of Ukrainians who resisted Russian invasion. We went to northeastern Ukraine, very close to the Russian border, and talked to people there who lived through very difficult moments one year ago. In this episode, we will tell you their stories. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who's heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com/ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. ukraine UkraineWorld. You can also support our volunteer and humanitarian trips to the frontline at PayPal, Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Ukraine.resistinggmail.com. So, this podcast is a kind of continuation of the previous podcast previous episode in which we talked to you about northeastern Ukraine about Sumshina. we went there uh, a few days ago with a big delegation of Pen Ukraine a Ukrainian writers uh, organization we also brought some some assistance some generators books mm. books to the local libraries and uh, and generators for for the defenders of the of the Sumy uh, region um, and let's talk about the personal experience. Uh, we were told many stories, and primarily we met people in the libraries. This is also remarkable that you can say, okay, what well, books are not important during the war; something else is important. But uh, we, we we made with PEN Ukraine three events in three different libraries: in the in the library of Sumy, in the library of Trostyanets, uh, no, no, in, in the library of Ochtyrka, and in the library of Gluchiv. We also went to the library of Trostyanets, so four cities, four towns, and um, everywhere the 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 halls were full, full of people, and uh, it was very interesting to talk and very very touching to talk. And uh, one of the one of the experiences that I have this la- latest experience in Halychiv, a, a Cossack capital, um, ten kilometers away from the Russian border, uh, that people we went, we had a about one hour talk with with the with the local with the local people uh and people started reading their poems one by one they went to us and were reading their poems i think four or five people and uh the poems were very very sincere and uh they were all of course about their experience and uh one of the incredible things is that we also met people who never wrote poems before for example, a woman volunteer who was among the organizers of a, of a big volunteer center in Hluchiv, she was reading her poem about how a how mother is waiting for her child who is on the front line, and then the child come, comes back to her mother finally, and she's so happy to see him, but she sees that uh, his uh, his hair is not black anymore, but it is gray. And he says, look, mom, but... Uh, I'm alive, and that's the most important thing. It was very, very touching, and, and people were crying in the hall. Uh, you know, people people writing poems during the war. Isn't that incredible?
1: Yes, this is incredible. Uh, and in Glukhov, yes, indeed, uh, we were inviting people to tell their stories. We were mainly interested in letting them talk about their experience just to explain us what was happening. And I remember many narrative starting, like, look, on the 24th of February, and then a couple of phrases about that, but then then they stop. Look, I'd better read you my poems. Many different people, men and women, were trying to deliver the experience in a poetic form. Sometimes for sure they were not recognized authors, it was could be judged as quite naive, but at the same time there were a lot of sincerity. But even more interesting thing about these meetings in the libraries that when you start talking to people and you see that people interested in books, in literature, in poetry, they are the same people who were extremely active on the volunteers front. So when you ask questions, they were exactly the same people who were trying to organize this civil resistance civilian resistance inside their cities. So you can, and everybody knows everybody in a way. There were people um, helping military during occupation or these first uh, weeks of invasion, whatever they were doing. There were the same people uh, helping civilians, uh, the same people uh, now active. This, I don't know, the heart of this, uh, of, of the city, the hearts of people reading books and doing their best to defend their cities during the invasion, uh, this and uh, Russian occupation. It was interesting thing. And um, about language, one important remark: we were told that in Sumshina, uh, people were mostly Russian speakers. At least it's kind of cliche about this region. And what we've noticed is that it's absolutely not true now, because uh, starting from the first days of invasion, uh, what uh, what did these inhabitants of the region. They and they were aware of the fact that Russians were able to, to listen to their telephonic conversation, to any kind of information circulating. And at that time, there was an appeal, just people, we can talk Ukrainian, it will create some problems for Russians. So they switched into Ukrainian. And now we see that not only in these libraries, but also on the streets, you hear quite a big amount of Ukrainian language, so not on... For sure, you can you can hear to some Russian speakers, uh, some people, uh, elderly people, they can have some problems switching to Ukrainian. But I would say that Ukrainian language is much more present now in Sumer regions than quite one year ago.
0: And the region is 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 full of uh, traces uh, of and presence of Ukrainian culture. Trostyanets is a town where Mykola Hvylyv was born one of the key authors, one of the key writers of the 20th century, of the so-called executed renaissance. Uh, the leader of this generation, who was active by, primarily in Kharkiv in uh, 1920s, and then he killed himself in 1933 uh, as a kind of protest against the uh, great famine, against the Holodomor and against the arrests of his fellow writers. Another big writer of the region in Ochtyrka is uh, Ivan Bahriany, who emigrated after the Second World War. And therefore, he was kind of a blamed by the Soviet propaganda as a collaborator with Nazis, which is, of course, absolutely absurd. So why he emigrated... With the Germans when the Germans retreated, because in the thirties he was sent to camps, and he miraculously to the soviet camps, and he miraculously survived and uh, uh he wrote one of the greatest novel about novels about the Soviet camps, which is called asad ahedsemanski the 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 garden of gas Geth, Geth, i don't know how to how to say it in english but the the reference of course, is to uh, Evangelic story about about Christ, about Jesus Christ, and 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 his last uh, uh, last um, uh, m- moments before his arrest. And uh, Ivan Bahriani, uh one of the who who was supposed to get a Nobel Literature Prize in the sixties, but unfortunately died before that and uh Hluhiev is our great composers two great composers Bortnyansky and Ber- Berezovsky. So this is a region full of Ukrainian cultural history because these these are really symbolic figures for literature and for music. And um and what what surprised us in a in a positive way because of course I mean Ukrainian book industry cannot really compete with the Russian book industry so far. The Russian book industry is much more powerful, and I would say that ten years ago we would see in these libraries primarily Russian Russian books, but now they're increasingly we see Ukrainian books in both both original and translated, and we with PEN Ukraine we also brought these books to to people, and the people were very interested, so they, they surrounded the, the books that we brought, and we talked about them, so. The experience, the everyday experience of people. Let's talk about this.
1: Let's maybe start with Sumy, telling what people in Sumy told us. So we were able to meet people in the library. We also were able to meet the Ukrainian writer, very famous one, by the way, Vladislav Ivchenko, who is is still living in Sumy and who spent all the time there inside the city. And all of them described these first weeks like... uh, very, very hard period when you really, literally don't know what's happening. You know that Russians are, um, they bypass the city. So you've seen probably some Russian tanks uh, crossing the city, but then, uh, but then they are out. You see no Russian presence, but at the same time, you understand that uh, you are cut off, you in a way cut off Ukraine. And a story we're told by, uh, by a woman from Sumy that every day, she watched. She, uh, she when she went out, she watched at the at the local grocery or pharmacy, if I'm not mistaken, to look if the Ukrainian flag is still there. And if, in case it's still there, she, okay, we are still Ukraine. So this is a very strange, bizarre feeling when you are not occupied, but you have no possibility to join, for example, your family somewhere deep in Ukraine. You have no possibility to to be in contact with them, and you understand that Russians couldn't come back in uh, every minute what people were telling us is that there were no panic and even if there were some shortages in the shops and in in in, in pharmacies there were uh, there were no cares no uh, robbing so people were organized they were making lines to get some food and there were not a lot of food in a couple of weeks there were really very simple food like like bread milk uh, they had no meat, no fruit or vegetables for for a couple of weeks, but people people were trying to to do in their best way. A lot of kids staying inside the city. There were uh, several uh, green, so called green corridors organized um, organized for civilians, but. Uh, a big amount of people were afraid to take these corridors because there were rumors about Russians killing people taking these corridors so a big amount of people stayed inside but precisely after these uh, big bombs 200 kilograms bombs were launched at the private uh, private sector at Romanska street there were a huge uh, exord of civilians from Sumy people were really afraid 23 people died during this, this attack and among them three kids from from the same family and then we are told about figures like 100, 100 people left sumi uh, in the south region to poltava after this attack because people were really afraid
0: yeah you mentioned the story of the flag and, and this is really something very remarkable we see how the national flag is becoming so important symbol and uh, these these uh, these values of patriotism—they are—they are back. They are so much devalued uh, in in the modern uh, liberal world, and I think it is wrong. We see that how how wrong it is because uh, this patriotism is just the feeling of a community. So you 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 told about this woman who was. Uh, every every morning after she woke up, she just went out of the window and looked if the uh, Ukrainian flag on the local pharmacy is still there. We also talked to people who were uh, um, who were making the chevrons, the the insignia for Ukrainian soldiers, and these sh- uh, little small insignias of Ukrainian flags, and they were looking for this. Pieces of uh, of uh, textile of yellow and blue, and sometimes they they were just using old dresses or they were using uh, children's uh, children's um, clothes to get these pieces of of, uh, of textile. And this is also so touching how how they made it to to make this insignia for for Ukrainian volunteers. Or another story that there was a rumor that the Ukrainian flag is no longer on the central Sumer building the administrative building and there was rumor was spread and people were so angry at at people who were spreading this rumor because for them losing the ukrainian flag and having russian flag instead was was a big would be a big blow we also talked to to people who went to the uh, territorial defense and uh, one of them who is called anatoly who is uh, a veteran of the donbas war uh, he he lost both of his legs uh, there and he's uh, traveling around on the, on a car uh for disabled people so a car which is driven only by hands and he was uh, speaking to us from this car and uh, even even despite that and even despite this major disability he's still organizing lots of things he was organizing lots of things and uh, and he is ar- organizing lots of things in terms of defense and etc.
1: We also met another man called Volodymyr uh, to whom, by the way, we transferred the generator. We brought to Sumy. Uh, he also veteran of this first stage of war back in 2014-15. He was uh, captured by Russian troops back in these years. He was severely beaten. Uh, so Russians were convinced that he was already dead. So they just left him behind. But he was not dead. So he he tried. He managed to to make his way back to the Ukrainians. Who he, he survived. He was severely. He needed a lot of rehabilitation. He's around 60 years old. And he was one of these people who organized this resistance during the first weeks of Russian invasion this year, last year, uh, 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 2022. Well-informed, well-trained, not so young, but still uh, experienced soldier. And what they are doing, so he felt confident about the future development of events because they say... We cannot influence the fact that Russians, Russia will attack or will not attack, but what we know, so we are doing everything possible. It depends on us to, to be prepared for that. So they are keeping in this first line of defense close to Sumy from the Russian direction, so they will be uh, they will be ready in case of a possible, quite possible invasion in the coming weeks.
0: We also t- talked to uh, two men who <clears throat> were captured, were probably the first... Um Uh, in this exchange of of imprisoned people, uh, prisoners of war during this war because they captured first the Russian soldiers on the 21st of February and then they were captured themselves, imprisoned themselves. And we talked to a woman, by the way, his wife or the the wife of one of these men who was uh, telling us how frightened she was because... uh, when he was in captivity because he had a chronic disease and he needed to take pills every every day and he didn't take it for three, four days. And, uh, you know, the, the fear that he will be killed was also connected to the fear that he will die from this chronic disease. And she was telling us, and by the way, this is the same woman who was this with this experience of the flag. She was telling us how incredible it was when he when he came back. And this waiting, I think, Waiting of people whom you don't know where they are is one of the most, you know, tragic and and painful experience from this war, and of, uh, unfortunately, in some cases, these people don't come back. And uh, one of the stories in Ochtyrka, we talked to two sisters, uh, women of about sixty years old who lost her brother. Their brother, brother was very active, and he was also organizing the. Territorial defense in, in Oktirka and uh, he was participating in the first fights with the Russian columns and unfortunately, when he during one of these fights, he was killed. but they didn't know about this for a week. I think he was found only a week after he was killed and of course this, this being in this limbo of waiting uh, for, for, for the relative for the close people is a very, very difficult thing.
1: We also told a um, story in uh, Luhiv about the uh, Ukrainian military. who was in the hospital on the 24th of February. He was in the hospital, so when the war started, he could not participate in the fights. But then uh, when Russians already bypassed Luhiv on their way to Kiev, uh, he put on a, a civilian clothes. Uh, he also... He had a not, not a car, but a bicycle, Not a bicycle, but mo- motorbike. M- motorbike. Motorbike. He took a motorbike, and uh, he took a bottle of beer or vodka, if I'm not mistaken. Vodkas. Vodka. And he was. He had a legend that he was just a guy who was drinking drinking vodka and traveling to his relatives somewhere, and he succeeded to make all his way from Lviv. To Brovary at that very time, there were fights, intense fights uh, between Russians and uh, Ukrainians uh, in the Brovary region, in in Skibin or elsewhere. So he was able to join his unit.
0: So this this is also a story of wit of Ukrainians, right? So you're a soldier, you're in a deep, deep uh, occupation. You're in the near the Russian border. You need to cross uh, a big territory of 300 or 400 kilometers which is full of the Russian tanks, of the Russian equipment. You should go through this equipment, and when you're stopped by the Russian checkpoints, you should say that you're a crazy drunk guy who just doesn't work anywhere, who just, uh, who is just, uh, you know. Uh, belongs to nowhere who drinks vodka and uh, is useless uh, absolutely useless and this is kind of a Ukrainian odysseus you know who who goes through these dangers and uh, finally reaches his unit his military unit to fight against Russians this is uh, one of the tragic comic uh, stories of this war.
1: Maybe somebody will will write a novel about that, about this Ukraine, Russian-Ukrainian war, and it could be one of the stories in this novel.
0: I would I would uh, stress the role of bread. The bread is is really important in, during this war because in the towns which are blocked, like Trostyanets, like uh, like Ochtyrka, uh, one of the key things is is where where to get some bread, right and uh, sometimes it's just well imagine people are without money without supplies and sometimes a volunteer volunteers are organizing the, the bread baking or it is imported from somewhere else and in uktirka uh, we were told by, by this these very sisters who who lost their brother we were told that uh, they organized the bread baking uh, they had some uh, somehow they they had this boroșno, the the, the 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 material how would you say it in English the fl- flour? Floor, flour flour flower. Uh, to to bake the bread and basically they were uh, baking it for everybody, including for the military and um, distributing it for free. And at one moment, one military came to them and, and give, gave 1,000 grievances for, for the bread. 1,000 grievances is about 25 euros. And they said, "Why, well, uh, we don't need this money. And he said, okay, but I have nothing to do with them. So it was kind of this play of gifts, you know, they, they bake bread he gives them money uh, to to make um, another part of another big portion of, of bread and I think this is this was very important thing right during the during these difficult times
1: yes and another maybe detail about atirka when we invited people to talk about the experience of the first days and first weeks of, of the of the resistance uh we impressed to see that uh, there was a, a huge emotion. So people were literally crying. Everybody was crying, telling these uh, the story of their lives during these weeks. Be it a story of these two sisters who lost their brother, or be it a story of a sixteen years old girl who was uh, who left. Uh, the town, with her parents, with her mother, and she was abroad, and he, she told the stories that she was missing her hometown so profoundly. She was crying all the time. So people, they need some communication and some conversation about the experience. It might seem uh, to be um, not interesting, because everybody in Ukraine has the same experience, the comparative experience, but we're impressed to which extent people are eager to talk, to tell their stories, and uh, each experience, be dramatic or less dramatic, but it is important now, and they have no time and no possibility to communicate about that because in the news they talk about Donbass, about Bakhmut, about Solidar, but all these wounds, um, which from the events which happened one year ago are still here, and people will need years to 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 forget not to forget that but to to be, to try to kind of peace with 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 what happened
0: yeah this girl uh, told us a remarkable phrase that before that she didn't understand what does it mean to love a country she didn't didn't understand that the, she she didn't have this feeling and at some place when she was abroad. uh, she was telling to herself, "Look, this is—you can love your your parents, you can love your your boyfriend, you can love your house, you can love your pet, but suddenly, you can love your country as a living being, as a, as a living being without without whom you cannot really survive." And uh, this is a sixteen year year old girl, a school girl, uh, who just fought with their relatives to come back, and as soon as she could come back, she came back. And now she's living in Ochtyrka, and again these people are, you know, living in an anxiety of the new Russian offensive. What else? Let's talk about churches. The churches are, are play also a very big role in the resistance in the volunteer movement. We have seen it in Kharkiv, and in our podcast about Kharkiv, we were telling you the story of. Uh, uh, Saint Dimitri, Svetodmitrievska Church, Saint Dimitri Church, which is one of the hubs of the volunteer movement in Ochtyrka, There is also, I think it's Svetomikhailivska Church, Saint Michael Church, uh, which became a very important place in, in which it was just full of uh, of beds for uh, for elderly people, for 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 ill people, for people who needed care, medical care. And it was also a a place of 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 distribution of aid, of distribution of food, of distribution of medicines. This is how the church uh, also comes back to very initial role, which is which it has played, it has played for for centuries, right? Uh, like a big volunteer or uh, force, the force of of mercy.
1: And another church in Sumer, this uh, Resurrection Church, a very ancient one from 17th century, which is Cossack, Cossack Baroque Church. And uh, we were told that uh, almost every military funeral now in the region takes place uh, in this church. So this is this old Cossack Church providing services for for Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, it was an interesting church which served as a fortress, in a way, in the previous centuries, uh, because it, it was protecting the city. And now it p- continues to play its role inside the city.
0: And maybe some other stories that show uh, also the other side, the Russian side. One of the stories we were told that... Um, uh, a Russian tank uh, was uh, going crossing a bridge, and uh, the bridge was very, very old. And uh, Russians were using maybe old maps. the The bridge was not really used, so even even by civilian cars. And the tank went on the bridge, and the bridge collapsed under the weight of this tank. And uh, and uh, only after the region was liberated, the tank was taken from the water from the river. And it appeared that all three people of the of the tank uh, team was were there, so the the bodies were there. So the Russians didn't take care to to take them from the tank. And uh, it also might show us uh, this thing that we repeat all the time in this podcast: uh, how this war testifies testifies the very low esteem for life, uh, value for life uh, in the Russian army, even for their own soldiers. So they have seen their tank collapsing to the river and they, they didn't care about taking, taking the bodies of their friends, of their colleagues uh, from the tank.
1: And maybe the very last story about this senseless aggression of Russian army. We were in Trostyanetsia in front of uh, Central Hospital, very modern hospital, very bright colors, modern equipment before the war, uh, modern way of treating the patients, and As uh, people say, uh, just a couple of days before Russian retreat, it was uh, in the late March, there were two tanks arriving in front of this hospital and they started shooting at the hospital, destroying it, several windows and walls. Just uh, without no visible reason, because there were no military inside, and you eat there were uh, uh, twenty patients inside with their doctors. And nobody important was there. So they were destroying this building, so nobody. Died. Fortunately, no nobody died during this attack, but the hospital was completely destroyed inside. So all these modern medical equipment was destroyed. Uh, a couple of walls and windows were destroyed so and so, and there was no explanation for this kind of aggression. So now this hospital is restored, um, uh, thanks to many donors, international organizations and private donors, they contributed to 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 restore the building, and there are already patients inside, so the hospital is functioning, even if you still can see some traces of this attack. But the big question out of the story so we just don't understand why do we destroy hospital with the civilians inside so you just you might need such a hospital why do we do so so there's no response to such a cruelty coming from the russian army
0: yes and <clears throat> we have made a video at this hospital uh, you can watch these videos and, and see this hospital in a few days maybe on our twitter ukraine world so this is indeed a situation when we we see how civilians are suffering uh, in a the, the most vulnerable civilians we have seen in Oktirka the kindergartens which were shelled by the Russians because they were targeting a, maybe a military unit not not very far away and unfortunately kids have died from this uh, from this shelling uh, but this is um, this story with the hospital yeah it shows us that the, the, this cruelty is absolutely senseless sometimes. So these were the stories that we wanted to tell you uh, about, about our trip to northeastern Ukraine, about the stories of people who, who are living there, who went through very difficult times, and who are strong, who are resisting, who are writing poems, who are volunteering, who are preparing for maybe a new offensive and this is a serious talk, uh, also in this region. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. I was joined by Tetyana Harkova, the head of international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can support us on patreon.com ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer and humanitarian trips like this one at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.